Thanks to Sandy Giannini for ringing the bells at 11 a.m., the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. 100 years after the armistice, the end of World War I. Armistice Day singled the end of the war, and it evolved then into Veterans Day, a day to remember and recognize those who have served, and in particular, those who gave their lives in service. Both functions matter, marking the end of war and honoring those who serve, as the prayer on the cover of this morning's bulletin will suggest. We're having an informal lunch after worship today. Those who served in the military in any time and in any capacity will be invited to share their stories. All of us are welcome to attend, to hear, and to tell. The impact of World War I on this congregation was significant. We had in that narthex back there a box for Red Cross contributions throughout the length of the war and supported other efforts as well. Paul Moore Strayer, my predecessor, was granted a leave of absence by the session so he could serve as a chaplain at a training camp in South Carolina, even though he was publicly opposed to the war itself. In all, 132 Third Church members served in the military or in a civilian capacity. 132. Five of those members died. One in training stateside and four overseas. And their names are commemorated on the plaque just there on the east wall of the sanctuary underneath the six stained glass windows that we installed and dedicated in January of 19. 22. Their names are Harvey Lawrence Corey, William Leslie McGill, Henry Oscar Summer, Frank Merritt Stewart, and Chauncey Tyler Young. We remember those names and their service, even as we acknowledge all who have served in any era with deep gratitude for that service and with fervent prayers that in the language of our tradition we pray for peace and work for the day when we study war no more. Let us pray. Gracious God, in the ringing of the bells and in the silence in between, speak your word to us and transform us for faithful and joyful service for Christ's sake. Amen. Our Old Testament lesson this morning comes from the book According to Ruth, the first five verses of the third chapter, and then the 13th through the 17th verses of the 14th chapter. Let us hear God's word. Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, I need to seek some security for you, so that it may be well with you. Now here is our kinsman Boaz, with whose young women you have been working. See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now wash and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. 
When he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. She said to her, All that you tell me, I will do. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When they came together, the Lord made her conceive, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without next of kin. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her bosom and became his nurse. The women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse, the father of David. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The power of the story of Ruth abides. The power of friendship, the power of community, the power of deep kindness the power of covenantal relationship, the power of faithfulness, the power of love, to quote a Huey Lewis song. Last week we heard part one of the story, a famine in Judea and a man named named Elimelech leaves Bethlehem to go to Moab. With him, he takes his wife, Naomi, and their two sons, and Elimelech dies. The sons marry Moabite women named Orpah and Ruth. The sons die. Naomi, a foreign widow, is left with no husband and no sons, her daughters-in-law with no husbands. It gets no bleaker than that. Naomi implores Orpah and Ruth to let her be, to find new husbands, to start new lives, but they say no. She insists, and Orpah returns to her former life without blame. But Ruth stays. Ruth stays. And part one ends with these iconic words that echo now even across generations to this present moment. Where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you go, I will go. Now to be sure, there is geography involved. Ruth will literally follow Naomi back to her homeland, where Ruth, a foreign widow, faces great challenge. But where you go, I will go, moves us beyond geography. I will go with you into your grief. I will go with you into your hardship. I will go with you into your illness. I will go with you into your depression. I will go with you into your addiction. 
Where you go, I will go. They go to Bethlehem. And a man enters the picture. As a friend of mine says, this is not the most feminist of stories. Nonetheless, this man named Boaz exhibits and then exhibits again and then exhibits some more extraordinary kindness. Ruth asks Boaz why he is so kind to her, a foreigner, a widow. And his first response is this, I am being kind to you because I have seen how kind you have been to your mother-in-law. And kindness doesn't quite capture all that's going on in this extraordinary story. It is compassion, compassionate kindness. As both Ruth and now Boaz buck tradition and play against type by doing the things they do and acting the way they act. Now my two grandmothers, before they were my grandmothers, conspired so that my parents would meet one another. And so like any good mother-in-law whose widowed daughter-in-law is watching out for her, Naomi does the same. She sees Boaz, what a good and kind man he is. And she kind of moves things on a little bit. She arranges for Boaz's and Ruth's kindness to become something more than that. First an unlikely marriage, and then an even more unlikely birth of a son, Obed. And God's blessings abound, and all is well. I invited us to read this story in its fullness last Sunday. I would invite us to do the same this afternoon. Perhaps, I don't know, as the Bills are changing quarterbacks or something like that. (laughs) It'll take you about 10 minutes and you will be profoundly affected by it. And then ask yourself some questions. Where do you find yourself in the story? Are you Orpah? or Ruth, or Naomi, faced with grief and a very uncertain future? Are you Ruth, who responds with deep compassion, leaving the familiar to demonstrate solidarity? Or are you Boaz, presented with an opportunity to be kind, to extend himself beyond conventional compassion, to use his wealth and privilege, in an honorable way? Who are you in this story? Or, as I bet might be the case, perhaps you've been more than one of the characters in the arc of this whole narrative. And then ask yourself another question. Where is God in all of this? Where is God in the story of Ruth? Edward Campbell, retired Old Testament professor at McCormick Seminary, says that the the book of Ruth is a tale of human kindness and just dealing far beyond the norm. Ted Campbell answers the where is God question this way. God is not only present throughout, but is indeed the moving force behind all the developments of the story. 
the moving force beyond all the developments of the story. And then Ted Campbell says, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz each act as God to each other by taking extraordinary responsibility and performing extraordinary acts of kindness. So what is it like when we face hardship? And what is it like when we face the opportunity to respond to someone, with someone who is suffering? Last Sunday I told the story of my paternal grandfather, Parker Wilkinson, He was a World War I veteran, by the way. He would talk about his walking tour of France and Germany with a tongue-in-cheek approach to the whole experience. And then decades later, as his beloved wife's health deteriorated, he cared for her with compassion and tenderness, to be sure upholding his marital vows, but doing so in such a way that memories still abide. We've all done that, cared for an ailing parent or spouse, journeyed with a child or friend as they've struggled physically or emotionally or spiritually as their road ahead has been a rough one. We've all been Ruth to Naomi or Boaz to Ruth. But in these days, might we think for a moment about the trajectories of Ruth the ethical and moral implications, all the places this call to compassion might take us. In fact, it's been a tough few weeks in the compassion department. People have been sent bombs in the mail. People have been shot and killed because they were Jewish or because they were black or just because they showed up at a bar to drink a little and to dance a little. Compassion and kindness are antidotes to fear and hatred. Though it feels like fear and hatred are getting the upper hand at the moment. But they can't. They mustn't. Even when the forces of hatred and fear are so strong, how can we as people of faith, how can we as people who follow Jesus, how can we as people who are given shape and form by the story of Ruth, persevere in acts of kindness? Acts of kindness that are never random but are always fueled by the God whose compassion for us is endless and boundless. I'm not a policy person, but I do think we are called to examine things like guns and immigration through the lens of Ruth. That while policy differences will remain, asking ourselves how can we apply the vision and values of Ruth in our present moment, not whether I believe, but how. Princeton professor Eddie Gloud writes that the belief that white people matter more than others has distorted our democratic principles and disfigured the souls of so many Americans. Gloud writes that we must confront the abject ugliness that lurks beneath our cherished way of life because it's now in the open for all to see. He says these are dark times and more than ever, we must be the light.
We must be the light. Now, because the Ruth story is read so often at weddings, which is A-OK by me, what can often be lost, however, in that sentimentality and romance is that neither Ruth nor Boaz expressed any fear of the other. The other, in this case, being a foreign refugee widow. We are measured, Jill Duffield writes, by how we treat the widows in our day. A disastrous, tragic ending is avoided due to the goodness of Boaz. Boaz acts righteously, Jill says, and within the customs and constrictions of the time and demonstrates proper care for widows, the vulnerable of the vulnerable. And then she connects some dots. While our country roils with conflict, division, violence, and deadly acts, the Bible holds us accountable to how we treat the disinherited. The scriptures require us to examine our hearts, actions, and witness in the face of our current context and every shocking headline, beginning with how we treat the least of these, the systemically oppressed and the situationally vulnerable, no matter who they are. No matter who they are. Now there will be times when the vulnerable will be living with cancer or dementia. There will be times when the vulnerable will be facing addiction or depression. There will be times when the vulnerable lose a job or have a relationship blow up. And there will be other times when the vulnerable are subject to racism or sexism or homophobia, or poverty, or tribalism, or religious bigotry, or xenophobia, or any other response that preys on that very vulnerability. And whether in the granular intimacy of a personal relationship, or in the grander stages of culture and society, our call is absolutely the same. Now we can call it what we will, compassion, steadfastness, faithfulness, kindness, love. But the call is to be as Ruth and to be as Boaz, to demonstrate with our lives as well as our words, where you go, I will go. Where you go, to a foreign place, to a terminal illness, to suffering, to injustice, to oppression, even to war. Where you go, I will go. And there you will find God with you in every moment and every step of the way. Amen.